So music has always been a, a large part of my life. My middle name is Neil. I'm named after the great American songwriter Neil Diamond. Um, true story. Thanks, Mom. Sweet Caroline, my favorite song, Forever in Blue Jeans, anyways. Um, so we always grew up listening to music, appreciating music in my home. And at age 12, I picked up a guitar and I decided to start learning on my own. And here's the thing. Most 12-year-olds are not grooving to Neil Diamond Records. So I got into uh, the complete opposite, punk rock, heavy metal, right? So as I'm learning guitar on my own without lessons, because that's not cool, uh, I, I learn in a certain way, and there's really, there's a benefit to this, and then there's a challenge. And here's how I would learn. I'd listen to my favorite song, I would pick out a note, and then I would try and find it on the guitar, on the fretboard, right? So that was good. I, I was, in a sense, it was good. I was learning how to listen intently for certain notes. I was familiarizing myself with, with the guitar, but something was missing. Because as I was listening to these songs, I was hearing a fullness to the guitar. Not, not just because it's punk rock and heavy metal, right? I was just hearing a fullness that I, I wasn't exactly hearing in my own playing as I was plucking notes one at a time. And then I discovered something. It's called a chord book. And it teaches you how to play, are you ready for this? Chords. And so here's what I learned. I, I immediately found out what was missing. See, I could play a G note. Very easily, top string, third fret, boom, that's a G note. But what I learned is that in that G chord, a G major chord, there's also a B and a D. And when you play all of them together, there's a fullness there, right? So I was, from then on, I was playing chords. Now there's two lessons here. First, kids, take guitar lessons if you want to learn, right? What, what took me a year, you can learn in 30 minutes uh, if you sit down with someone who knows what they're talking about. But the second lesson related to our text this morning is that just as that one note on the guitar lacks the fullness that the G major chord brings, so God tells us, listen, we were not made to be alone. God's created us to be in relationship with Him and with one another. And more specifically, what we see in our text is that God has created man and woman as equal in dignity, worth, and value, yet with a distinctiveness that together strums this beautiful chord of God's design. Now to be forthright with the obvious, this passage addresses some controversial issues in our culture, doesn't it? Did you hear it as we were reading? A man exercising dominion? An explanation of gender? Differences and similarities? teaching on God's intention for, for marriage and sexuality. If we were to take a top ten list of hot-button issues, boom, all five of them are, are right on that list, aren't they? And this is why it's so important for us to expound, to open up, plainly read, explain, and apply the Word of God. Because everybody, all of us, we're being taught on these very issues by either two things, either the world or God's Word. It's unavoidable to hear the music coming from either direction. And the world is strumming chords on these things loud and clear, aren't they? Manhood, womanhood, gender, sexuality, marriage. And so what we need is to come to God's Word, and we need the song of God's Word to speak louder 
as our ultimate and final authority in our minds and hearts. Now, we certainly, there's just absolutely no way we can plumb the depths of all of those things I just listed and that this passage hits on. We don't have the time for that this morning, nor is that really the scope of this text. But my prayer is that as we see this foundation for those things, as we walk through this text, we'll begin to see that they are true, good, and beautiful. God's design for us is true, good, and beautiful. And we would begin to hear the glorious song of God's design for us as his image bearers. Right? That's where we're headed this morning. And just to, to bring you up to speed, we're in chapter 2 of Genesis. Chapter 1 gives this flyover view of creation. And then chapter 2 begins and zooms in on day 6, the apex of God's creation, the creation of man and woman. And as we walk through this passage this morning, we saw Adam created last week. We're going to observe three things in our passage this morning. First, we're going to see God's assessment of man's condition, verses 18 through 20. Second, we're going to see God's provision of a helper in verses 21 through 23. And then third, we're going to see God's covenant of marriage. So we see an assessment, a provision, and a covenant. So let's begin. First, we see God's assessment of man's condition. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now let's consider the narrative of Genesis so far. These words, as we think about what's been happening, should come as a shock to us. right? What's been the continual refrain in chapter 1? God creates, He sees His creation, and He declares that it is what? Someone say it. Good. All right. You're with me. That's good. He says this is, this is good. Then, in chapter 1, verse 31, after both man and woman are completed, are created, he says it is very good. But before the very good, we learn in verse 18 of chapter 2, before the very good of Genesis 1:31, we now learn there's something that was not good. Something was lacking. And notice who declares this. This isn't Adam. As far as we know, he's, he doesn't even recognize that something is lacking yet. It's, it's the Lord God who says, this is not good. Here's what he's doing. God is showing us, the Word is showing us, that we are made to be in communal relationship with others. It is not good for us to be alone. We've actually already seen a hint of this in Genesis chapter 1. If you remember, verse 26, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And what, what do we get in Genesis 1.26? We get this glimpse, this first hint of the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. Now here's the Trinity in two seconds. One God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now why is that significant? Here's what it means. The one true God himself is a community. And he has created image bearers after his image, therefore, he has created us not to be alone, but to thrive and flourish in communal relationship. So God looks at man's condition, and he says it's not good for him to be alone. And Listen, this is so hard for us, I think, to grasp in our hyper-individualistic culture. But do you, do you see just how jarring this is? Because what, do we, what does Adam have at this point? He has life from God. He lives in Eden. 
He has the fullness of creation, and as we'll see in a moment, he even has meaningful work to do. You, you might hear that and say, what else, what more could you want? But God looks on this and says, something is missing. It's not good for man to be alone. So he goes on, second half of verse 18. We're told that God's going to do something about this. I will make a helper fit for him. We're going to return to that phrase in a moment. Helper fit for him. A lot jam-packed in there. But first, notice what God does. God, because Adam's unaware, he has a way of showing Adam that he's relationally lacking. He wants to show them this. So we read in verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. So God creates animals. He brings them to Adam. And what is Adam starting to do? He's starting to exercise that kingly authority over creation. And he is naming the animals. Now, immediately what comes to my mind is the Bob Dylan 1979 song, Man Gave Name to All the Animals. Any, any Dylan fans in here? Didn't think so? Okay. Let me just read you. This is Bob Dylan's imagination of Genesis chapter 2. He says he saw an animal that liked to growl. Big furry paws and he liked to howl. A big furry back and furry hair. I think I'll call it a bear. Right? Love it. Poetic genius from Bob Dylan. Right? There's no relevance to that, to the sermon. I just wanted to include that in there, right? Maybe it went something like that, surely with a lot less rhyming. But listen, there's, there's something deeper going on here. It's, it's not just that animals are parading by and Adam's like, bear, giraffe. What's, what's happening? He's studying these creatures. And what is he learning? He's learning to differentiate between them. He's honing this ability to recognize both the uniqueness of God's creation and the sameness. He's doing what God has called him to do as he exercises dominion, but he's also recognizing, wait a second, these creatures that I am to name, they have suitable companions for themselves. And so we read in verse 20, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Do you see, I hope you guys see the brilliance of how God works here. He doesn't just snap his fingers to provide a, a helper for Adam. First, he walks him through a process where he sees first his own need for relationship. He sees that he's lacking. And then listen to this, church. What God is doing is God is preparing Adam to value and treasure the helper that he's about to provide by recognizing his own lack and need. And friends, the application here for you and I is, is simple. We need relationship. It is not good for us to be alone. Church and Christianity and the Bible are not the only ones to recognize that. And in January of this year, Cigna, the healthcare provider, released a study that 61% of Americans feel an intense loneliness. This is up 7% from 2018. Reasons listed include not having enough social support, having too few meaningful social interactions. The problem wasn't connecting with people actually seeing them, but meaningful social interactions. Not having a good work-life 
balance. Now, of course, this, this was released in January. The pandemic has only exacerbated these issues, right? And if you study this, you see that it's related to a whole slew of other mental health issues. And we see God's truth here confirmed. It's not good for us to be alone. We're created for communal connection. In fact, listen to how the preacher puts it in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man's might might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. What is Ecclesiastes saying? Community provides protection. It provides fulfillment. It provides care. Right? We're not created to be alone. Now, this doesn't mean, because this is where the text is going, it's going towards marriage. So I, don't, I want to be clear here. This does not mean that the solution to loneliness is always marriage. I want to say that out at the, at the out front. Since God's about to provide this wife for Adam, we might be tempted to think that. But let me remind you all of what is plainly obvious in the Bible. The greatest human, the most fulfilled man who ever lived, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, was single. Okay? In fact, what, it, what we really see here, Elizabeth Woodson comments on this. She says, Genesis 2.18 is a descriptive text from which we can extract the prescriptive truth that living outside of community isn't good. God created us to live in the context of relationships, and those relationships look different for different people. For some of us, community will take the form of a spouse and kids. For others, it will look like a good network of friends and extended family members. And listen to this, for all of us, it will mean belonging to a local church. See, friends, this is why we as a church emphasize and love the word family. Not only because it's a biblical description of the church, but because in a hyper-individualistic culture like ours that's just full of pseudo-connection, we want to prioritize the relational nature of the church. This is why we prioritize church membership. This is the why behind gospel communities and DNA groups. They're not merely programs of the church. They're channels through which we pursue deep relationship with one another as God intended for us. Because there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian in the Bible. That's an American idea. The idea that it can just be me and my Bible and God and I can come to a, a worship gathering and sort of observe but never really engage. Listen, friends, that's exactly what God is telling Adam is not good. He says, Adam, you have good work to do. You have me. You have the beauty of creation. But you can't rightly experience those things or reflect my image on your own. It's not good for you to be alone. To put it another way, we can't fully relate to God we can't fully carry out his work, or we can't fully reflect who he is without relational community. And it's not because there's anything lacking in God. It's because this is the way God, the triune communal God, designed us to be. And so do you recognize that it is not good to be alone? In your own life, are you pursuing meaningful connection with other people? believers. Okay. 
So that's God's assessment of Adam's situation. Number two, God's provision of a helper. Now here's where we want to return to this phrase at the beginning of, or at the end of verse 18. I will make a helper fit for him. Now there are connotations to this word in our language that are foreign to the Bible. Let me give you an example. Merriam-Webster definition of helper. You ready? A relatively unskilled worker who assists a skilled worker, usually by manual labor. I heard some giggles before I even finished, right? Do you see how this could be confusing if that's your understanding of helper? Is God saying that man is the skilled worker while woman is merely the relatively unskilled worker who assists him? That's not the idea here at all. In fact, helper is in no way in the Bible a demeaning term. It's the, it's the, it's the opposite. If you were to look at all the Old Testament uses of the word helper, do you know who, who they're most attributed to? God himself. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Same word. You read Psalm 46. What happens if the help of God is not there? The storms of life overpower the psalmist. Margaret and Andres Kostenberger, in their wonderful book, God's Design for Man and Woman, they note this, although God takes on the role of helper only temporarily to come to the aid of a given individual, the fact that God can be said to be a helper lends great dignity and value to this role. Since God is clearly not inferior to anyone, whatever the term helper entails, it certainly is not inferiority. So, with that in mind, this, this helps us better understand the meaning of Genesis 2, right? The, the word describes one who provides what is lacking in the man, who can, who can do what the man alone cannot do. The man, the representative, the leader, was created in such a way that he needs the help of a partner. And this helper is the phrase, they're fit for him corresponding to him, meaning that the woman would, would share the man's nature. Whatever the man received at creation, she too would have. So let me try and sum all that up in, in a, a couple of sentences. In man and woman, there is sameness of nature, dignity, worth, and value as image bearers. The Bible is crystal clear on that. There is also uniqueness of role and responsibility. And together, they fulfill the creation mandate of Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. That's the teaching of the Bible as a whole in Genesis 2 foundationally. And we see this fleshed out even more as we read of God's creation of woman in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made, the word there is built, into a woman and brought her to Adam. Now note, Adam has absolutely nothing to do with the creation of woman, does he? He's not like giving suggestions, right? We, we again see the refrain throughout this passage, the Lord God caused a deep sleep. And the Lord God made or built the woman. Adam's not even conscious when this happens. I love that. He has no idea what's going on. The only thing he contributes is a rib. 
And listen, there's, there's a ton of speculation on why the rib. I have no idea, right? Some people said, well, that's why men have le- one less rib than women. That's not true. People are weird. That's... But we do know it's of the same substance. That's the emphasis there. He's not even conscious when it happens. All he contributes is a rib, and even that's not his choice. So he, God creates her, and then the Lord God brings her to Adam. Now remember... Remember the animal naming situation. Adam's ability to differentiate between creatures, both uniqueness and sameness, has been sharpened by that intricate study. He's seen what it's like for God's creatures to have suitable counterparts. That process has created in him this awareness uh, that he's missing something, this loneliness. See, the narrative here is meant to build this sense of anticipation when we get to verse 23 and read Adam's response. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The first time we hear from an image bearer in the Bible, and it's a poem, And it's a poem of celebration. And I think the English word there in verse 23, said, Adam said this, is not good enough. He didn't say this. He shouted it out. It was this overflow of joy as he sees God's gracious provision in the woman. It's as if he says, alas, one who is like me, an image bearer, but also different from me. One whom we together can fulfill what God has called us to do. And oh, how beautiful she is. Thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord. The Apostle Paul thus writes, 1 Corinthians 11, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is now born of woman. And here's Paul's commentary. All things are from God. All things are from God. God did not form another creature out of the dust like he did the animals. God did not take Adam and create a carbon copy clone. No, what did he do? He created a woman out of Adam's side. And I love how Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, remarks on this. Listen to what he says. He said she was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled on by him but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. Beautiful picture of God's gracious provision. Now there's an obvious observation here from this text that is obvious in the text, but it's not in our culture, so we need to be just crystal clear on this. This means that gender is not up for grabs. It's not a social construct. It's not subjective, maleness and femaleness. We are born either male or female with a purpose and design from God who loves us and desires for us to reflect Him as the men and women He's created us to be. Now we must extend endless amounts of love and grace for those who personally wrestle with these issues. Gender dysphoria, as the American Psychiatric Association calls it, is a genuine struggle, and it is serious, and it is increasingly more so in our children and youth, which is heartbreaking. But friends, true and lasting help comes not from ignoring God's design for gender, but embracing it. 
Now, when we talk about these issues of maleness and femaleness, the, the biggest question we tend to have is, okay, what does that look like in everyday life? And that's about a six-sermon conversation, okay? So we're limited this morning. We, we do spend a lot of time working through those things in our discipleship tracks, Kalos with the women, Lithos track with the, with the men. I, I highly recommend the Kostenberger's book that I mentioned earlier um, for, for things like that. So we don't have the space to go into all those details this morning, but there are some takeaways here that I, I want to be clear on. And the first is this. It's important to note here that the woman is made a helper for her husband. And man needs help and leads his wife. It would be outside of the bounds of Scripture to say that every woman is a helper in the same way to every man, and vice versa, every man is a leader to every woman. As a husband, I'm responsible to lovingly my family and my wife, okay? Likewise, my wife has a distinct role of helper in our marriage. And so as we think about the wider world outside of the family, there, there's nothing in Scripture, as some have wrongly said, that would bar women and men from working interchangeably as CEOs or lawyers or politicians or whatever other leadership positions outside of the home and church. Okay, I want to be clear on that. Second, while masculinity and femininity work out in all areas of life in different ways, the two areas of focus in the New Testament are the home and the church. One of our distinctives as a church is actually rightly ordered relationships. Those of you who just went through the membership class and read the membership booklet, you would have read this. Our statement in our membership booklet puts it this way. Distinction between home and church. In the home, God has assigned a humbling and unique authority to husbands to lead and serve with Christ as the ultimate example. And the primary text for that church is Ephesians 5. If you want a great passage to sit down and reflect on this week about what this looks like in the home, turn to Ephesians 5, through 28. Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's how Paul applied this passage and this truth. Now, our statement goes on to speak on the church. In the church, certain qualified men are called to serve as pastors, elders, exercising a servant leadership by which all members thrive. Both the home and the church ought to be contexts where women thrive. Neither the home nor the church can be healthy without both men and women being loved, taught, respected, heard, and deployed for service. God's highest glory and our deepest joy coincide when we wholly embrace the sex He has assigned to us and His intentions for our masculinity and femininity. Now, we see these instructions for the church laid out in passages like 1 Timothy 2 and 3. I'm just, I want these on the screen. You can dig into these later. Titus 1, 1 Peter 5. And as we look at those, what we see is 
When we see God's design for man and woman as true and good and beautiful, and we live it out in the home and in the church, we actually, Titus 2.10 says, we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We're upholding who God is to a watching world. Which then leads us to number three, God's covenant of marriage. So we have God's assessment, God's provision, and God's covenant of marriage. As we come to the end of this passage, Moses then interjects and he makes an application. He says, therefore, verse 24, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. In other words, this is the foundation for the covenant of marriage. And and notice what he says here. When he says a man shall leave his father and his mother, it's actually an interesting phrase because in our culture, that makes sense. Oftentimes when people get married, They've already been out of the house, they've gone to college, they've moved away. That's actually not what happened in Israel. When a a couple would get married, they would usually stay in close proximity to the husband's family. Very, very close. Sometimes even in the same household. So then what what can Moses mean here by leave? Here's what he is saying. He's saying the primary commitment of relationship shifts from your parents to your marriage. Your wife is is now primary. Your husband is now primary. In other words, the marriage relationship is to be the closest and most important human relationship on earth. And he says he is to hold fast to her. This is, this is covenant language of binding themselves together. In this, the phrase that Moses uses is one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. Flesh, And that, re- that phrase refers both to sexual consummation of marriage as well as the ongoing depth of relationship between a husband and a wife. And Jesus teaches on this, talking about the permanence of marriage, God's intention for marriage in Matthew 19.6. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So again, Let me state what is plain in Scripture, but murky in our culture. Marriage, as God defines it, is between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And the gift of sexual union is to be experienced only within the marriage covenant. This means adultery, sex outside of marriage, polygamy, homosexuality, and any other forms of sexual expression are outside of God's design for marriage and sexuality. And this is where the world looks at this and says, see, the Bible is closed-minded. It limits the freedom of my self-expression. God is a killjoy at best and a bigot at worst. But friends, is that what we hear from this narrative? Do we see A God standing over man and woman with his arms folded and a scowl on his face saying, I don't want you guys to experience true happiness. So I'm just, I'm going to limit your freedoms. No, in fact, it's, it's it's quite the opposite. God is saying, listen, this is the way I've created you. And when you function in this way, when you walk in my design, you aren't hindered and burdened, but you're free to enjoy me relationship with others, and life as it's meant to be. Uh, We have a couple of betta fish in our house. Uh, Betty and Brian are their names, in case you're wondering. 
weird fish names. I don't know what, where that came from, but um, how strange would it be? By the way, we have fish because we have six kids, so real pets are just not allowed. But uh, how strange would it be for me to look at Betty and Brian and say, oh man, these poor fish, they're stuck in water. They, I, let's take them out to the backyard and let them roam free in the grass. They're so restricted in water. No, that wouldn't be good for Betty and Brian. They would die. Why? Because they were made to thrive and flourish and live in water. Likewise, God has created us to live, thrive, and flourish by following His good purposes and His design. This isn't just about marriage and sexuality and gender, but every area of our lives. And as we'll see next week, the ploy of the enemy, Satan, has always been to take what God says is good, true, and beautiful and try and twist it and make you and I think that in actuality it's false, bad, and restrictive. But that's a lie. This design is for our joyful good and for God's glory. But friends, there is a deeper reason this marriage covenant and this design is so important. Just as Jesus taught on this passage, so did the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 5, we read part of that earlier, but listen to what Paul says as he goes on in Ephesians 5, verses 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is patterned after and points to our marriage, human marriage, is patterned after and points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says, listen, this is profound. And don't mishear him. What he's not saying is, yeah, marriage was a good illustration for the gospel and you can use it in sermons or when you're talking to other people. No, he's saying the entire story of God's pursuit of sinners like you and me is a marriage. Friends, the gospel is all over Genesis 2. Think about it. Adam goes into a deep sleep. And from him, when he awakes, from him and woman, God forms the entirety of humanity. Christ, who lived the perfect life we can never live, went down into the sleep of death. But he didn't stay in the grave. He rose from the dead three, later, three days later. And when he arose, he began the creation of new humanity, the church. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Adam was united to his bride in marriage. Christ, the bridegroom, so loves his bride, the church, that he gave himself up for her and is sanctifying her, washing her, preparing her. That's us, church, we who believe for a future with him. And so we read finally in verse 25 of Genesis 2, we read that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now what does this have to do with the gospel? Well, this is a transitional verse. It's, it's pointing us to what's going to happen next week as Pastor Clint looks at the fall. This open nakedness was not yet shameful as it soon would become. There was no shame because there was no guilt or sin, only the full enjoyment of God and one another. 
And friends, it's impossible. It is, I try to imagine this this week. It's impossible for us to imagine what that's like. We're here this morning, all of us, as sinners who know guilt and shame. Every single one of us, we know the desire to cover up our struggles and sins and hurts. We're burdened by loneliness. We've been broken by shattered marriages. We've been emptied and hurt by sexual pursuits outside of God's designs. We feel the weight and shame of guilt either from our sin or from the sin that has been against us or just by the sheer nature of living in a fallen world. All of us fall short of God's design in Genesis 2. The ground is level for sinners before a holy God. But there's good news. Because the Bible doesn't just begin with a wedding, it ends with a wedding as well. And as we look to the future day, that's pointed out to us in Revelation 19, 6 through 8, here's what we see. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You see what we're told here? This means the first question that we need to ask ourselves is not how's my marriage, though that's profoundly important. The first question is not how do I understand gender and sexuality, though that's profoundly important. But it's not even am I living out God's design in this way rightly? That's not the foremost question. The foremost question is do I understand the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because that is the foundation for all of these things. The good news that Jesus pursues wayward sinners like you and me by living, dying, and rising, that we may be united to Him, friends, married to Him by faith. That's foremost for each of us. Then and only then can we walk in righteousness as we seek to live out His design for us as men, as women, as church members, as brothers and sisters, and fathers and mothers. And here's the beauty of that picture of what's coming. Revelation 19 says, He will clothe you with this garment of grace. Your shame will be completely removed. Whatever you've done. So friends, let us first, let marriage, God's design for man and woman, let it first point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then may we, with that framework in mind, as we study His word together, seek to walk in His good design for us. Let's pray together.